Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at the law today and specifically our relationship to the law. So the Christian and the law. What do we think about this thing called the law? If you're new to Christianity, let me clarify. We're not talking about law enforcement like police officers or sheriffs and things of that nature. That's not what we mean in this context. There is in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible are referred to as the Torah or as the law. This is the, the moral and the legal code of God's people to the Jews in the Old Testament that they lived by. And they labored very intently to try to fulfill the law in all of its righteous standards. And then this man named Jesus Christ comes along and changes everything. And we're trying to figure out, okay, so then what do we do with that now? So that's what we're looking at today as we think about the law. So read with me, if you will, please. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7, verse 1 through 6 today is what we'll read. And then I'll reference most of the passage of Scripture today. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no, she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by." so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let's pray. Lord, help us today to understand your word. Help us to understand specifically how it is that we now as Christians, those who have been redeemed and delivered by Jesus, have been renewed and restored and have the Spirit of God dwelling in us now, how we live and how we function, especially in relationship to the law. So, Father, guide our time. May it be fruitful and productive for each one of us. And may the end product be simply that we cleave wholeheartedly to Jesus in everything that we say and everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how do we think about the law? That's our question today. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, it's very clear in the New Testament that the law does not save us. The law is not actually the thing that makes us righteous before God. And yet this law does reveal God's holiness to us. And in the Old Testament, at least, they were commanded to obey this again and again and again. So then what do we do with the law? This is actually a question that Old Testament scholars and theologians debate and scratch their heads about quite often. One of my good buddies growing up, or not growing up, but coming up through academia, through my, my education, a buddy of mine named Tracy who did a PhD in Old Testament. One day after he was about 10, 15 years removed from our PhD work, and we were walking down the hall one day, and I said, so what types of things are you working on today? And he just looked at me, he said, we're still just trying to figure out why a law in the first place? If this was all going to Jesus Christ in God's providence, why a law in the first place? 
And I think the Apostle Paul helps us to answer that question, at least partially in Romans chapter 7, as he talks about our relationship to the law. Now, you might get thrown off a little bit right here at the very beginning in the passage that I just read. You notice here he starts off with this discussion about a woman and her husband and whether or not she's free to remarry. There's genuine insight about what Christianity says about those issues in those verses. But let me be real clear. That is just an illustration that he's using there to make the broader point about how it is that we relate to another. There was a time when they lived under that law, and now he's saying, and now we don't, because we are no longer married to that one. We're married to someone else now, namely Jesus Christ. So we'll come and see that here in just a few moments. All right, so let's begin and see what we find here in the text. Number one, the first thing that the Apostle Paul shows us, I'm actually going to start in verse number seven and go down through verse number 12. First thing the Apostle Paul shows us here is that the law reveals our problem of sin. So when we ask that question, why have a law? Why do we need to have that law? What Paul shows us here in this chunk of scripture, verse number seven through 12, is that God's law is given to us to help us see the problem. In other words, the law does a diagnostic function in our lives. Diagnostics, what is that? It's when you, something's wrong with your car and you take it to the shop and they plug that little thing in and it runs a few little tests and it spits out a code on that little machine. They're running diagnostics. What they're doing is they're discovering the problem in that moment with your car. And in short, this is what the law does in the life of God's people. It shows us where our problem is. How? It does it by revealing God's holiness to us and then showing us just how woefully short we fall of that. So a couple things to note here in verse number 7 through verse number 12 here as he's teaching this, showing this to us about how the law reveals our problem. First of all, the law shows us our problem because it shows us God's righteous standard. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 7. He says, I would not, for what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary. Let me pause right here for just a moment because that language in and of itself can be somewhat confusing. Why would the, Paul even entertain the question about the law being sinful? Because in short, what Paul is going to do is show us that the law messes us up. It's because of the law that we actually find ourselves in trouble before God. That sounds bad. Hence the question, is the law sin? He's going to answer, certainly not. On the contrary, listen to this. I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. So in other words, what Paul shows us here first is that the law is just revealing to us God's holiness. Now, you inject that, God's revelation to us about His holiness and His righteous standard. When that is introduced to sinful people, fallen people like me and like you, here's what's inevitably going to happen next. The moment we, fallen sinful creatures, realize God's righteous standard, something inevitably happens. Now that I know, as a fallen creature, I'm not supposed to do X, guess what I'm going to want to do? I'm going to want to do X. Look at verse number 8. 
He says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, this is not to say that we weren't sinners prior to receiving the law. Absolutely, we were sinners prior to receiving the law. It's simply to say, isn't that just the way it goes in our lives? The moment we're told not to do something, that becomes the very, very thing we want to do. I remember when our kids were little, we would say to them, we just, as we thought about our home, and you know, a lot of, a lot of folks will sort of de-childify their living room, right? They remove all sharp objects and books and precious things. We just decided not to do that. We just decided, we, and, and for somehow it worked, uh, but we just decided that we would be vigilant and we would teach our children because we wanted them to not get the disposition that they could just walk into anybody's home and start picking up things and breaking things. So where better to teach them not to do that than in our home? So in our home, we would sit there and we would, we would, when they would get up and they'd start to touch something, we'd say, no, 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 that's not what we do. If we had to get up and actually go over there and stop them, that's what we did. It was tired. It was so exhausting. But that's what we did. And I can remember with a couple of our children, I won't say any names, we could say to them, you, I won't say their name, don't touch that. And it, it seemed that there was something in that statement, don't touch that, that made them want that. It's been this way from the beginning, right? God says, you can eat of all these trees, but of this one right here, don't eat it. What do they do? They make a beeline for that very thing. So the law reveals God's righteous standards. And when that happens to fallen people like us, the very next thing that happens is we're going to want those things. And now verse 9 through 11, watch this. Now that that happens, we now know that we're condemned. Verse number 9, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. You see the, the overall negative effect that the law has had on us. Hence the question, is the law sinful? For sin taking opportunity by the commandment deceived me, and by it, it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy. I mean, it's almost struggle to, to see how he draws these conclusions, right? Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. What is the law's function in our life? Having said all that, it's very simple. It's revelatory. It reveals. It's diagnostic. As I said in a moment ago with the car diagnostic tool, there's lots of other tools in our lives that we use that are diagnostic, right? How many of you have ever had an x-ray? How many of you ever had an MRI? How many of you have ever had a CT scan? All of these things are diagnostic. You go, how many of you have ever had blood work? That's virtually everybody in here. Why do we do all those things? Because you just can't, well, maybe in my case, you can tell by looking at me that there's bad stuff wrong with me. But in y'all's case, you can't. Just by looking at the outward shell or the veneer of the person, you can't always see that there is a problem. But blood work has the ability to get into the fine grain stuff. MRIs have the ability to get into the stuff that we cannot see and show us that there's a problem. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you like and enjoy the thought of an MRI or one of these other diagnostic tools? How many of you enjoy the thought of it revealing a problem to you? None of us. But at the end of the day, if there were something badly wrong with you that needed to be known now while there's time 
to be cured, how many of you would want to know it? Well, that's not as many as I thought, to be honest with you. Because about half of you just said, nah, I'd rather die. So maybe you didn't understand the question. Let me, let me try this again, all right? If there was something terribly wrong with you and you're going to die, but you can't see it, there's a test you could run, as, un, as not fun as that might be, there's a test you could run that would reveal that problem to you such that you could get cured. How many of you would want to run the test? That's a little better. That's a little better. That's the way it is. I remember when I was a kid, uh, it was the little pink tablet in elementary school when we would, you know, all have to do the fluoride. It was so nasty. And they, you know, most of us would try not to do it. And we'd try to cheat and all those things. What well, to sort of motivate us to take the fluoride that always about once a year, they'd give us that little pink pill. And that little pink pill, here's what you do. You say, chew it up, swish it around in your mouth and spit it out and then look into a mirror. And for all the kids that thought they had done a good job brushing their teeth that morning, that little pink tablet was a tattletale. The little pink tablet would show all of the plaque and all of the junk and all of the tartar in the mouth. It was disgusting, but it was revelatory. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Look, the law is good for us because the law reveals our problem. And by the way, you and I all have a terrible, awful problem in our sin. Sin separates us from a holy, righteous God. And that might not sound all that menacing on the surface of it, but here's the deal. If you die in that state of separation, it will go on for all of eternity. Wouldn't you want to know that? While there's still a chance, this is what the law does for us. Romans chapter 4, verse number 14 through 15. For those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is to say, it's not to say that we're actually clean and without excuse. Romans chapter 2 makes it clear that none of us are without excuse, even if we didn't have the law. But what it means is we just don't know that we have a problem is what he's getting at in Romans chapter 4. So the first thing I want you to see here this morning is that the, the law reveals our problem. The second thing I want you to see in Romans chapter 7 is that the law shows us that we're also powerless against our sin. This is what we do. Let's just talk honestly for a minute. As people, I don't know if it's our pride. I don't know if it's our shame. I don't know if it's our laziness. I, I don't know what motivates us. Truth be told, in every last one of us, it's probably other various factors in each one of us that motivate us to do this. But the end result is typically the same. It's called the white-knuckled approach. What we try to do is we try to fix ourselves by trying harder. We clench our fists, we grit our teeth, and we give it everything we got. And we try, and we try, and we try, and we try to fix ourselves. It doesn't work. What Paul says to us next in verse number 13 down through verse number 20 is it is never going to work. He talks about verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? In other words, is the law only death to me? No, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. In other words, now all of a sudden, the law is showing me this other thing in me, sin, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. I'm getting worse and worse and worse, he says. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now verse number 15 following, watch what he says here, because he's going to describe you. And he's going to describe me. Listen to this. For what I'm doing... 
I don't really understand. He's talking about your sin. Pause for a moment. Consider your sin. What sins are in your life? And I don't mean like mistakes here and there, one-offs. I'm talking about your, your soft spots, your vulnerabilities. We all have them. Think about yours for a minute. Now, why are you doing it? It's probably in your mind very complicated. Paul says this, watch. For what I'm doing, I don't really understand. We get all mixed up in it. Can't quite make sense even of ourselves and our own actions. Watch this. For what I will to do, in other words, what I want to do, that's the thing I don't practice. So these good things over here that I want to do, that's what I don't do. But what I hate, that I do. My guess is your sin is something you, while it brings you pleasure of some kind, sure, temporarily, there's probably a deep loathing in your soul towards it. You probably greatly lament it. You probably don't want it there. And so again, listen to what he says, for what I will to do that I don't practice and what I hate, that's what I do. If I then do what I will not to do, then I agree with the law that it's good. In other words, if you also, the law is saying it's bad, and if you in your own consciousness are saying, yeah, I don't want to do that, you're agreeing with the law. The law is therefore good. The law is on to something. It's telling us the truth about ourselves. This is what he wants you to see. You're broken. Let's just own it, man. We, I've said this to you before. We spend our lives trying to veneer and cover up the brokenness and the problems in our lives, desperately afraid that someone's going to figure out something's wrong with us. Maybe what we should all do is just all take a big sigh of relief and admit, yeah, there's something wrong with every one of us. But now, listen to this. <laughs> Verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know, this is, if there's a verse in chapter 7 for you to memorize, it's verse 18, listen to this one. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present within me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Wow. There's nothing in me that's good. Remember Romans chapter 3? This is the the crescendo he was building up to, there is a problem with every single one of us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now what Paul wants you to see is not just that you have sinned in some one-off fashion such that, yeah, there was a time I did a bad thing. What Paul now wants you to see is that it's much more systemic in your life. It's much more hardwired into your psyche. You're bent, man. You're broken, man. For I know that in me there's nothing good that dwells that's in my flesh. For the will, in other words, I have the desire to do the right thing. That's present within me. But how to actually do it, I cannot find how to do it. For the good that I will to do, I don't do. And the evil that I, I will not to do, that's what I do. That's what I practice. And now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. What's Paul showing us? What's the law showing us? The law is showing us God's righteous standard. It's diagnostic. It reveals to us that there is a problem. And now second wave into that, it's far more pronounced than that. It's far more ingrained with that. It's not just that I've done a few things along the way that weren't ideal. 
It's that I'm bent, I'm broken. You're bent, you're broken. There's something wrong and all of us are powerless against it. Kind of like me at Thanksgiving. I know I shouldn't eat all that, but I'm going to eat all that. The good that I don't want to, the good that I want to do, I don't do. I just cannot bring myself to eat salads, y'all. Doctor says I need to eat green stuff. Does mint ice cream count? I mean, that's green, right? Uh, It's a good illustration. But the reality of this is not nearly as trivial as our diet, is it? There is indeed something in all of us we're broken. And here's the thing. What Paul wants you to see is not just that you're broken and bent, it's that we are helpless. You know, maybe some of you are this way. Hear me. I can remember thinking to myself when I, it was occurring to me back at the age of 17 and 18 years old, I can remember very distinctly realizing that there were deep, bad, dark problems in my heart and in my mind and in my soul. And I can remember feeling like what I had to do was fix it. What I had to do was repair it and correct it in my life. And then I could come to God. Because I could never, ever come to the Almighty so dirty and so filthy. I mean, this is inappropriate. It's not right. And I had too much pride and too much self-esteem to ever do that. And here's what I did. I literally tried everything I could conceive of to fix myself. I quit a job I was working at because there were bad influences there. I worked a different job. I tried to hang out with different people. I tried to pour myself into my music. I started trying to go to church. I started trying to read my Bible. I started trying to pray. And I kept working and working and working and working and working to fix myself. And nothing worked. I remember between the two arrests... After I'd been arrested the first time and now deeply embarrassed and wounded publicly and shamed by what I had done. About a couple weeks later, I was sitting one Friday night. My friends had all come over. They'd smoked all my pot. They drank all my beer. They'd left to go do other things. My mom was at work. I called my girlfriend. She had another guy over at her house. And I remember hanging up the phone with her, just feeling absolutely broken and desperate. I had nothing, I had nobody it felt like that I could turn to. And the overwhelming realization occurred to me, which in the moment from that frame of reference and that perspective broke me to my core and rocked me and I felt terrible, I felt awful, I I felt disgusting, I felt so disappointed in myself because I had drawn the realization that I simply cannot fix myself. And I prayed a prayer that at the time felt like the the most foolish, futile, awful thing I could ever verbalize in my life. And now, understanding my Savior as I do, I was finally where He wanted me to be. I cried out to God. went in the bathroom, I shaved my head and I shaved my beard and I came back and I looked in the mirror and I looked exactly the same. And in great brokenness and desperation, I dropped down to my knees and I prayed a simple prayer. God, I don't know if you're real. And God, I don't know if you love me the way Ms. Marshall says you do. But God, if any of that's true, help. I felt 
so small. I felt so defeated. And yet Christ had me now where he wanted me to be. Fully and completely and acutely aware of the fact that I could not fix this. And that there was only one who could, and that is Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see, number one, the law shows us we have a problem. I want you to see, number two, the law shows us that we're powerless against that problem. And now thirdly, I want you to see what Paul says in verse 21 through 25 and then 1 through 6. There he shows us that this is the point he's been building through throughout the book of Romans. This is the point he wants to make clear to us even in this very chapter. Third and finally, we are free from the law and we are bound to Jesus Christ. This is the point about that whole, you're now married to another passage. Yes, the Bible does actually say some things about that, about marriage and husbands and wives and when they can remarry and when they can't. It does say stuff just like that. Yep, but that's not his point right there. Don't get confused by it. That's an, that's an analogy. That's a metaphor. That's an illustration of the larger point. He's using marriage. And what we say here is a, is a bit of an illustration to make his bigger point about our now relationship, our divorce from the law, or our, I should say not divorce, our death to the law through Jesus Christ and our marriage now to the man Jesus Christ. To be in union with, not the law, but to now be in union with Jesus Christ. Christ. Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members. In other words, I, yeah, I want very badly to obey, but I find this in me, my members, my body itself, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now watch this. Here is the conclusion in verse 24. He's trying to get us to. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what we need to understand about ourselves. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Desperation. And now the conclusion, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself may serve the law of God, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. In other words, all of that was done to bring me to this place of desperation that I could only find help and relief in Jesus Christ and now cleave to Him and be united with Him. This is his point in verse number 1 through verse number 6. There's this metaphor about marriage. Verse number 6, here's the conclusion of it. But now we have been delivered from the law. This is the point that he's trying to make in that husband-wife thing. We've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. We have died to the law, in other words, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the older letter of the law. And he gives us that illustration of being married to another one now in verse 1 through verse number 5. I can remember, how many of you have ever been to, to Israel? If you ever had a chance to go, you should, you should absolutely go. I can remember when we went, it was a, we had a fantastic time, just wowed by so many different things. But I can remember when the Sabbath came. Uh, it was a, a, seemed to me a day like every other day until I went to the elevator. And when I went to the elevator, I noticed that it was taking a particularly long time for the elevator to come that day. And I thought, what in the world? I got to go. Come on, man. We got to do that. I get in. I start mashing buttons. Nothing happens. I'm like, man, this elevator's busted, and all of a sudden the door's shut. And I said, uh-oh, it's busted, and now it's closed me in. 
And then we went up one floor and the door opened. I thought, well, I didn't want to go to that floor. And I pushed buttons. Then it closed and we went up one more floor. And the door opened and I'm, I'm, I'm not knowing what's going on. And then I figure out, we're stopping at every single floor. I get off the elevator. I explain to the people that I'm with, the party that I'm with. I'm like, man, this is the strangest thing. The elevator's broken, y'all. It's not working right. It's stopping at every floor. And they explain to me that this is the way that they're programmed to function on the Sabbath. Every single Sabbath, you mean to tell me the elevators do that? Yep, that's exactly what happens. Why? Lest you get onto the elevator and work and break the Sabbath. Work? I didn't see any cornrows in there. I didn't see any work to be done, no fences to be mended. What are you talking about? Pushing the button is work. I thought, my word. I went down to the cafeteria that day. I, look, I was like Gaston. I could eat a dozen boiled eggs every day. I love them. Love boiled eggs. And I went to the little place where they had the, the boiled eggs I got every day, and I picked them out, and I noticed, oh, wait a minute, the shells are off. I thought that was a little weird. They had peeled all the eggs the night before, lest we work on the Sabbath. The toilet paper was already partitioned off into usable portions for you to use in the bathroom, lest you rip the toilet paper and work. I mean, look, this is, this is a group of people trying to keep the law. And now Paul tells us, through the death of Jesus Christ, we are now dead to that law in the same way that a woman who would have been married to a man, when he dies, she's no longer married to him. If she married someone else while he was alive, she'd be counted as an adulteress, right? But once he dies, if she remarries, she's not counted as an adulteress. And now the point that Paul wants to make is in the same way that that woman would be free to marry another and live life with that other, you now, through the death of Jesus Christ, Christ are freed from the law and you're married to another. I've had the great fortune of only being married to one woman. I've known a lot of friends though through death end up remarried to another. I've learned this just by watching, just by observation. When you marry someone else, the rhythms and the habits and the customs and the patterns of your life inevitably change, right? And this is the point. You no longer have to live your life obsessing and laboring and toiling and trying to satisfy a law that you could never actually satisfy. Why? Because you're dead to that law now and you are married to Christ. And your life and the patterns of it and the customs of it and the rhythms of it are now found in Him. So in other words, here's what that really does mean for you. Just love Jesus and follow Him. That's a whole lot better, isn't it? Thank you, Lord. I don't have to program the elevators the way we did. You know, yesterday was Halloween. It was also the 103rd year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. If you don't know what that's about, Protestant means protest. There was this growing, ongoing corruption in the church. Before then, there was really just one church evolved into what we call now the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. There was a time long before that where our roots go all the way back into that. And so the, the church, which we would have been a part of back then, had grown increasingly more corrupt. Corrupt morally, corrupt politically, corrupt theologically. Martin Luther comes along, an aspiring lawyer. He is almost struck by lightning one night on his ride home while he's on his horse. 
and the bolt of lightning comes down and the horse jumps back and Martin Luther is thrown from the horse and he lands on the ground in great fear. He commits his life to going to live as a monk if God would spare his life. And so he goes. As a young monk, he becomes more and more increasingly acutely aware of his own sin and the anger of God towards us because of our sin. And Martin, trying to alleviate his guilty conscience, goes again and again and again to the confessor to try to confess his sin. They say that Martin Luther would just wear out the confessors, and they would say, Martin, you've confessed. Go on from here, brother. And yet Martin could not let it go because his conscience was guilty, and nothing he did would alleviate this guilty conscience. So he took up the Greek New Testament. This was during a period called humanism where ancient works like the Latin texts and the Greek texts were sort of being rediscovered and reappreciated. And so it was now in vogue to study Greek again. And Martin Luther picks up the Greek New Testament, trying to translate it into German at the time. And he becomes particularly interested and obsessed with the book of Romans. And as he's confessing and confessing and confessing his sin, he can never alleviate his guilty conscience. And he tries and he tries. He goes to Rome to see if in Rome he could find some help. But what he finds there is that the priests and the nuns are morally corrupt, sleeping with each other, out of wedlock, having babies in secret, and that there's corruption widespread. Martin does not know what to do other than continue going to the Scriptures. As he translates the book of Romans, there in Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, and verse number 17, Martin Luther, against this backdrop of works, 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 you, you do good things, you confess your sin, you make God happy with your own righteousness, and all of those things. Against that backdrop and the misery of his soul, Martin Luther stumbles upon these words right here, Romans chapter 1, verse number 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Listen to this. Here are the words that rocked him and the Protestant Reformation began. For in it, that is the gospel of Jesus, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Not by effort, not by good works, not by confession and all of those types of things he was trying to do. But no, the just shall simply live by faith. Faith in what? And faith in who? In Jesus Christ. And realizing now that the church had lost the gospel itself and rediscovering it in the scriptures, Martin Luther and others rise up in protest October 31st, 1517, he nails the 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, and here we are today. That is to say, everything about our faith is what I've talked about here this morning in Romans chapter 7. It's not through the works of the law. You're dead to that now. And you're alive to Jesus Christ. You are married to another. Therefore, walk with Him. Just one more passage of Scripture real quick. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 18. For I say then, here's the conclusion, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Or if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Father, bless us and help us to realize this today. And help us to celebrate Jesus Christ, to boast in Him, place our full, complete confidence, hope, and trust in Him.
and be obedient. We love you and we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.